Guru Nation, welcome to episode 501 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, I interview Scott Ballinger. He's the global head of sales for Zymewire. And we talk about business development and why business development is important and should be thought of and an activity that should be done by everybody in this industry. Whether you're, obviously if you're a business owner, it makes sense. Uh, But also if you are an employee, an independent contractor it also makes sense for you to do biz dev you got to treat your own career as a business so this is what this interview is about all the way from business owners to employees and business development in clinical research we also take a look at the uh, forecasting tools that Zymewire has and we get into some good stuff it's pretty interesting stuff I really enjoyed this one with Scott Scott's LinkedIn profile is in the show notes so make sure you check it out he's a good person to get to know Uh, other links in the show notes is my patreon channel it's only five bucks a month includes a monthly mastermind it's val it's the best five bucks a month you're ever going to spend just from the mastermind alone but if that's not enough i also do weekly videos on how to use how to utilize digital tools sometimes social media uh, to sometimes things like Simeware to increase your opportunities. So check that out. Once we get to 50 people, I'm probably going to do two masterminds. Uh, at least that's the goal for now. Two masterminds a month once we get to 50 people. Also in the show notes, CRA and CRC Academy. Links there. And if you want us, my consulting company, DSCS, to help you get more studies for your site as well as a bunch of other stuff for a low flat monthly fee just text me 949-415-6256 and with that being said enjoy the show hello guru nation welcome back to another episode of random musings from the clinical trials guru i got scott ballinger from zymewire and uh, he is actually the uh, global head of sales for zymewire scott ballinger uh, his LinkedIn will be right underneath the show notes. Uh, his LinkedIn quote is, let's unlock more value. And this is what we want to do for you guys. We want to unlock the value hidden in this podcast episode uh, so that you guys can actually do something with it. And you guys or gals, actually, let's face it, it's mostly gals these days. You might be site owners. You might be employees. We just interviewed Scott and Pete Bastedo from Zymewire a few days ago. And Scott's story was so interesting. And, you know, he brings an interesting uh, approach and an interesting angle and interesting perspective to clinical research because of the biz dev role that he's been in uh, for most of his career. I mean, we're going to get into his career, how he got started, but just check out his LinkedIn and you'll see what I'm talking about. But welcome, Scott. Thank you very much for coming on. Hey, Dan, thanks. Good to see you again. We uh, were together last week, and it's a quick turnaround, but uh, you're yeah. such a uh, prolific and productive uh, sharer of information. It's no surprise that we're, uh, we're together just a couple of days again later. Never waste a good opportunity to bring on an expert like yourself uh, to give Guru Nation more uh, value. I mean, you couldn't have had a better tagline on LinkedIn for this episode. So I guess let's talk about you, because we touched on it briefly in the Zymewire episode, but that was really more about Zymewire as a whole. Let's, let's get into your 
background and your career, who are you and how did you even discover clinical research? You bet. And, and, and thank you for the, uh, the, the last interview. We talked about that webinar and thanks to your uh, nation there, we've seen a lot more views on the webinar that you shared in your show notes. So when we were talking about ZymeWire and the, the COVID cliff, but uh, ah, you know, good, if, good. If, if we rewind on me, I am a pharmacist by education, but while I was in pharmacy school, I kept gravitating towards the business of healthcare rather than the, the practice of healthcare. And there was a pretty natural flow out of pharmacy school and into the pharmaceutical industry. And my first job out of, uh, out of uh, college was carrying the bag, being a pharmaceutical representative, <laughs> being a drug rep. And I had the, the good fortune to go to work for a company, it was just Glaxo at the time, it was before it was GSK. But in my bag, if you will, I had Zantac, the first billion dollar drug. I had Zofran, the first oral antiemetic for oncology, and I had Imitrex, the first sumatriptan migraine therapy, and I, I thought work was going to be and sales was going to be the easiest thing in the world because <laughs> those products did so well. I had nurses that would hug me over, you know, bringing Zofran to them, migraine right. patients that would come down and tug on my sleeve and say, this has changed my life. And of course, the sales of, of Zantac were setting records, and I thought, sales is easy. All you have to do is to show up. But that was a really product-driven and innovation-driven success there. Um, but early into that career, uh, I wound up you know, getting a, a, a more responsibility there. I became a regional manager, but I followed a mentor over to the emerging CRO industry. And this was early 90s. So to go all the way back, and she went to join PPD, and I followed her, my mentor, and I was uh, one of the first business development people and one of the first 250 employees at PPD when they were just, wow. uh, just getting started and, and really starting to expand as a CRO. So I got to see that growth. I got to see that company go public, acquire multiple other CROs <laughs> after they went public. And that really sort of Im immersed me in the fascinating and and highly differentiated world of, of clinical research and solution sales in clinical research. Yeah, your experience is so robust. I'm looking at your LinkedIn now. You just casually threw in PPD with Insight and uh, Pharmaceutical Research Plus and Glaxo like all. <laughs> you don't have enough space to put all your experience. <laughs> well, so, so what happens there is you, I, I've, I've got into business development for PPD, they go public, they acquire multiple companies. And wow. when you acquire companies, the salespeople wind up sitting on their hands while they figure out territory, shuffling around. And I had seen that so many other challenges within clinical research, one of them being patient recruitment. I said, you know what, the mm -hmm. CRO is going to grow, they're going to move these territories around, they're going to keep doing that. There's a lot of unmet need in patient recruitment. I'm going to go do sales in the patient recruitment space. So you see that I, I left PPD and, and took off and did a couple of tours in different types of patient recruitment companies, probably most notably a Curian would be, you know, ones that uh, your audience was familiar with. And I was sort of first head of sales for those companies when they were very small. And we went on to, uh, to grow them into, you know, significant enterprises and, and both were ultimately acquired. But, uh, you know, I got really uh, familiar with the patient recruitment space. And it's just interesting being in business development. One, you get exposed to a lot of different types of projects, all different types of therapeutic areas. 
multiple companies, regions, you know, all around the world. And it, it's always challenging to sort of help and, and convince the stakeholders on the buying side about new solutions. You know, what is it that's right. going to help them, you know, step into a new solution, a new innovation and take a chance on something they've never done before. And I just, I, I've always liked that challenge. And, and, and that's how I viewed, you know, my role in that business development function. Yeah, I mean, there's so much we can actually talk about. But so sales rep, so pharmacist by education, and then sales rep for GSK. And because of GSK, I guess, uh, the involvement with clinical research, that's how you got into the research space. And you know, I was familiar with it through the pharmacy education. Obviously, in pharmacy school, we studied the whole process of drugs becoming approved and things like that. But it wasn't until I followed my mentor from the commercial side of selling approved pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. over to the development side of PPD being an outs- one of the early, early outsourcing solutions I see. for clinical trials. So and that was those- the part I missed because I... I know you, you mentioned that, but I think that part, so because most people at these, especially big places like GSK, they keep sales and R&D completely separate. I mean, I know at my so. sites, you know, we have sales reps coming in all the time. They barely even know what research is. I mean, uh, so how did you like, you had a mentor who was a liaison, I'm guessing? Well, uh, she was in, in, in leadership, uh, also a pharmacist. And as she kept her eye on sort of emerging markets and she started to see that outsourcing was going to move from a tactical and capacity management sort of strategy for the pharmaceutical industry to something more strategic of we're going to you know look to their therapeutic expertise we're going to be able to grow our portfolios and pipelines by allowing these these uh, capacity you know uh, flexible organizations to do more research for us and she was just you know looking at the trend and yeah told me about it it, it made a lot of sense it sounded exciting and uh I had, had come to realize that it wasn't my great salesmanship that was moving those great Glaxo products, <laughs> that it was pretty much uh, the, the products that we're doing. And I was, you know, hungry for a challenge like that. So, you know, that's how I, I moved from one side to the other. But your point is true. These larger organizations, commercial operations and the development side, very distinctly different uh, and, and very different, you know, objectives and agendas and also a little bit of regulation that tries to keep the, you know, sort of church and state type of separation between the two. But I'm sure your experience on the sales side, it's it, it's interesting, actually, because yesterday I was in Clubhouse under Guru Nation. We have a Clubhouse on Monday nights. Uh, this one was called Keeping It Real in Research with Marjorie from Topaz Clinical Research, who's the host. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a someone in there who I've never met before, and she was a CRA for like 10, 15 years. And then she became a sales and currently still is a sales rep for the same drug that she was monitoring uh, as a CRA. So that's somebody who did the opposite of what you did, right? They came from research to do sales. And she said that she can always go back to sales. She just likes what she's doing right now, or she can always go back to monitoring, but she really likes the sales aspect of what, of what she's doing now. So I just thought that was cool. Like it's very rare that you see somebody on both sides, sales and R&D. And I'm sure that's helped you in your career a lot. You know, the, the educational background, I, I'm sure I draw from it all the time and don't even realize it. But whether you're a, a, a monitor or a coordinator or some, uh, you know, a, a staff pharmacist or any of those types of things, 
you're going to bring a credibility to the selling process that others without that background can't do it. You just have a business background. You can read all the manuals, get all the training, learn all that vocabulary, but the, the nurses, pharmacists, or people in those roles, maybe without those degrees, they have a credibility that you just can't buy and you can't study up for. So you, you can see very successful people stepping out of practicing roles, functional roles, and becoming you know, a, a, a very successful sales professional. So you spent a lot of time in the um, patient recruitment and then trial acceleration institute. So I'm guessing that's something study startup related. You know, Trial Acceleration Institute was uh, my uh, solo sort of practice of doing consulting all around those things that could innovate and help accelerate the trials. Ah, so you're an entrepreneur as well. Yeah, for 13, <laughs> for 13 years, I was self-employed and took all of that knowledge that I'd learned at PPD and through those recruitment assignments and even at, at Glaxo and said, you know, there's no one solution that fits every <laughs> problem, but you know, considering everyone I've met, everything I've seen, maybe I can help on a, on a case-by-case basis, you know, find the right set of innovations that will address the, you know, chronic delays that a lot of research faces. It's, I'm trying to figure out, so, because it's unusual for pharmacy, um, or pharmacists, right, uh, to, get into all these different roles like you truly are a generalist not to mention entrepreneur uh yeah i wear the generalist uh, with uh, with a smile and some pride the same way maya was talking about it yeah that's right i think i think it serves most people to be generalist i think even if they're not aware i think everybody starts out as a, as a specialist somewhere but really our goal is to become generalist and that doesn't mean to know less of what you know it means to master different things and then kind of add everything to your repertoire um so what earlier we were talking about sites and what sites can do um to do better biz dev primarily we have mostly sites watching as well as cras or people who work in the industry we've got a lot of entrepreneurs as well so mm -hmm. like i guess biz dev to some extent is the same process no matter who you are right even if you're just an employee you've got biz dev as well you if you got furloughed yeah. guess what you're <laughs> you better do some biz dev to get hired again um so what what are some things that let, let's start with sites what can sites do to do a better job at biz dev as far as getting more studies for themselves yeah, so sites are super busy. There's always something to do for every role at the site, the investigator, the coordinator, the manager, uh, you know, the billing, you know, there, there's an unending to-do list there. And I, I would encourage sites to think about how can they get others selling for them? And sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll talk to, if you talk to five sites, four of them are going to say, get a great relationship with a CRO and they'll start to feed you a pretty steady stream of studies that you may get some or whatnot, but right. that same concept sort of expanded to all the other solution providers. If you think about like pre-COVID, the DIA annual meeting in June, so DIA, yep. you go to that exhibit hall, 400 uh, solution providers in there. Right. is in there, little people, new things, uh, but look at those solution providers that have something that interfaces with the sites 
And you know, whether it's a productivity tool, a telemedicine tool, uh, a data capture tool, but if you are compatible with and conversant and, and can use those tools, those sales teams will promote your site as ready to go. And they're, they're budgeted and built to be in front of the sponsors all the time. And sponsors, oftentimes they'll say, this is a neat solution, but do you have a ready network right. of sites that can, can actually use That's it? That's always their question. Realize that value. And if you are one of those sites, I know from selling you know, those different, different solutions. We say, if you need a site in San Diego, we've got three that use our product or have used our product. So, you know, that that's one thing that they can do um, to, uh, to get others selling for them in a similar way that CROs, once they like that site, they'll continue to feed it with study opportunities. But look at that, that whole, you know, just you can go to, to DI's website and look at the exhibitor list and say, there there you other go. I was just going to ask you, how do we do that now? We can't travel. Yeah. So, you know, their, their current and past exhibitor lists are there. And you can just say, look at those and say, are these, you know, do I have relationships here? And do those companies know about me? Because they are actively selling to the sponsor companies for studies. And they want to connect the dots between their solution and that end data mm. capture, that important data capture that the sites provide. I guess so I just connected some dots too, because uh, so we have this brand called Latinos in Clinical Research, and we've been getting approached, actually, yeah, like swamped with requests from vendors to feature their their product or to just interview them um, for for our Zoom meetings or our videos. And so that's another way is to like just keep keep up with current events in the space, like try to subscribe to Latinos and clinical research, go to DA, go to bio, look at past exhibitors. Now, some of those vendors are, in fact, a lot of those vendors, I would say, it's not free for the sites. So the sites would have to find a reason to use it um, as opposed to just, but some are free as well. I was going to say, I can think of good handfuls that are free that, that you know, they charge the sponsor, but they don't charge the site. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, a third conversation, this is our second, but maybe a third one we have is, you know, does ZymeWire in its own way configure in such a way that it becomes very useful with all the sales signals that they have specifically yeah. for sites. Obviously, you know, lots of the big solution providers use ZymeWire for that very purpose, but could we configure it in a way that it would be most useful for, uh, you know, the sites and their business development needs? But we'll, we've we'll add been, that as a third conversation. It. Yeah, that might be a third interview, but that's, I mean, we've been using ZymeWire for at least six years for our sites and it's definitely helpful. Yeah, um, exactly. So yeah, that's definitely a, a very good advice though, as far as the vendors that are out there. And yeah, like don't break the bank if you're a site. There are plenty of free ones out there. Uh, and this again, LinkedIn, this is why LinkedIn is important. You can get on LinkedIn. So all those exhibitor things that you see on DAA or you find somebody on Latinos in clinical research, you find a vendor that you like, go to LinkedIn and look up that company and go connect with all the all the staff there and then start networking with them. Say, hey, I'm a site. Vendors love sites. That's a way to Trojan horse themselves into the sponsor's uh, coffers. <laughs> you, you are correct in terms of having a, a business card that identifies you or an identity, the business card's kind of old school, that identifies you as a site. Absolutely, sponsors and uh, will uh, we'll take note of that. And you're more welcomed than I am with my business development <laughs> identity. I think... Uh, I didn't appreciate this, like the value of a site 
because I always took it for granted. But if you think about it, the site is where all the action occurs. This is where the, the only place where the patients interact with the, the sponsor, right, is at the site level. So it's at the epicenter of all the activity, all these vendors, no matter what kind of solutions uh, they're offering, it's tested at the site level, right? That's right. Access to patients and the expertise that you guys have. And, you know, another sort of selling way to think about it, if, if you have a special capability around the therapeutic area, like NASH or, or, or oncology, mm -hmm. be able to articulate that quickly and clearly and, and really, you know, blow that horn, uh, you know, a lot across that stakeholder landscape, whether it's the monitors, mm -hmm. the sponsors on LinkedIn, but, uh, you know, there are, there's, an appetite for therapeutic expertise and that access to patients. Ultimately, that access to patients is what sites bring. And, uh, you know, the story you tell around that will, will get you noticed. And now diversity as well. Um, yeah. So if, you, if you're a site, not just the therapeutic expertise, but access to a diverse, uh, a diverse array of patients in your site or that your site has access to, that is another thing that the sponsors are desperately seeking um, for good reason. I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the biggest reason is the FDA wants them to have more minorities in their studies. Um, yeah, it, it absolutely needs to have representation uh, that, that represents the, uh, the, the, the patients that uh, the med medicines will serve. Mm -hmm. So from your, so you primarily you were B2B, right? Were you ever like B2C in any capacity? Other than if you think about the role of patient recruitment being B2C, mm -hmm. I, I definitely have had a lot of exposure from media, social media, data-driven, all those different touch points to introduce clinical trials to potential participants. That is a B2, uh, B2C experience that you know I, I have quite a bit of, mm -hmm. but the other side, the transactional, the business side, always B2B. I think B2B is so much easier than B2C. I've tried B2C at the site level, getting the patients, like directly communicate with patients that are outside of our database. Very difficult, Very much good. better served, much better ROI if I can do a B2B sale with a clinician in the area and say, hey, you know, you do the B2C because the, they trust you. They don't trust me. That's what makes it hard. There's trusted channels. They're very hard to scale. You're absolutely right. So yeah, you know, mm -hmm. scaling trusted channels for the topic of clinical trials is, uh, is, is, re is really challenging. That's why you see so many different uh, takes on patient recruitment, you know, different tactical elements and right. uh, different approaches because it's a, it's, it's a steep hill to climb. How, how has BizDev changed over the years? Um, th there used to be this saying that, you know, it's the good old boys club, right? Like you would just get favors if you were a vendor. And I'm sure there's still a lot of that going on because at the end of the day, it's about relationships. But I feel like it's less now with technology. It's a lot more transparent about who's actually providing what. What do you think about this? Have you observed this change? Absolutely. So in the early days, you're right. It was me looking through, quote, my Rolodex and having <laughs> contact. An contact. actual Rolodex. Yeah. And building <laughs> relationships. Those relationships made the decision. Am I going to give the trial? It, 
Am I, did they think, am I going to give the trial to Scott or did they think I'm going to give the trial to PPD? You know, what, what was it? Was it the relationship or was it, uh, you know, those types of things, but it was a one-on-one -on -one sale. But what was the answer? Did they give it to you or PPD? <laughs> we, we, you know, I think it was a mix of both, but you mm -hmm. used to hire based on who had that Rolodex and who could get the, you know, two ah, those decision makers. Now you go forward procurement departments are now a layer in between that type of activity and behavior. Uh, like you said, there's a lot more analysis of what are we, uh, of cost comparing of ROI and it's team selling. I, I used to be on the road by myself. I had to know this much biostats, this much regulatory, this much cardiology. And I would, you know, sort of talk through the, the capabilities and whatnot and try to make the sale. I, I developed a proposal with, with some assistance. It, it was me and the buyer. Now it's teams, it's procurement, it's their specialist, it's our specialist. And you see team-based selling across all of that, you know, uh, the life sciences solutions. And the salesperson is more of a quarterback or an architect, sorry get the right people in the right places, understand the needs, do really good needs analysis, then bring your experts to really speak to it versus trying to be the sole you know, uh, uh, vessel for those, those different types of solutions and messages. Right. Do you think that's the reason is due to increased competition across all these verticals? Uh, you know, the environment's definitely much more competitive now and, and discreet in terms of solutions. Now, you've got your large CROs that can do every single aspect of drug development, every right. single aspect of right. it, and across multiple therapeutic areas and across the globe. But then you have, you know, niche providers, you have discrete solution providers. We're just about billing. We're just about regulatory filing. We are just about this type of ECOA. And depending on what type of expertise you need or the, the particular you know, problem you're trying to solve, those solutions can be the right one and or they can become you know, sort of the dominant player in that space. And then you can probably count on one of those big CROs to buy them and put them <laughs> into their portfolio. Right. We have everything you need. Happens all the time. Yeah. Um, sponsors, you know, they're the ones who ultimately drive all this. Are they, are you noticing that they're wanting to outsource less, but more strategically now than before? Because you've been in the industry a good amount of time. So you've probably seen like the days where sponsors would just completely give everything to CRO and say this is autopilot. And now it's completely different. You know, the contract structures are certainly different and they're more accountable and they bring the two parties closer together with sort of shared goals and shared rewards or penalties if, if things don't go as well. So that's matured quite a bit. And overall, outsourcing has grown and continues to grow and will continue to grow. But that also factors in the functional service provider model where you're insourcing outsourced people. So, you know, if, if you, mm -hmm. if, if you rent all of your experts from one of the big CROs and they actually sit in your offices or carry your, you know, temporary email addresses and whatnot, that's still outsourcing because it's a two-year contract or something like that for the, the length of the program. But outsourcing has been growing, um, you know, briskly for, uh, you know, last 15 years. And, and you guys study this at ZymeWire, right? Like you guys collect that on just about everything. 
Yeah, we uh, we have a, an interesting view of, of all those business development practices and, and, and what's sort of happening in that marketplace. And, you know, we, we touched on it in our first conversation, but that long tail of biotechs, mm. lots of opportunity there. Lots of opportunity for sites there. Yeah, I don't think it's ever been more opportunities uh, than we're seeing right now with the explosion of, of uh, CRISPR type therapies and all the research that's just getting started now with COVID. Microbiome's going to get interesting. Microbiome's going to get extremely hot. Synthetic vaccine, like mRNA vaccines. I mean, that's a paradigm shift right there. Just those three things alone could double the size of the industry if everything else just continues at the same rate. Well, and, and the other factor that just doesn't show any signs of letting up is the capital that's willing to invest mm. in these areas. That's you know, right. Different, different you guys economic were talking about climates that. and whatnot, or different competition for investment could, you know, shape how much biotech growth and how fast biotech can grow. But we're, we're in an interesting time where there is just so much capital looking for opportunities to invest that the biotechs... Uh, across multiple therapeutic areas, across these delivery systems, across new areas like the microbiome, they're, they're not running into a lot of barrier on getting funded, and that's going to swell all that opportunity. Yeah, I was watching your guys. Thank you for bringing that up. Nobody really talks about that. I'm, I don't think I'm qualified enough to talk about those kind of things, but you on your webinar, on ZymeWire's latest webinar, which I watched about half of it, you had Michael Loftus on in yeah. the beginning and he talked about exactly this he said 2020 he's seen like after the after the initial fear from the pandemic he saw an explosion of investment yeah in this space there's what this, do you think that's due to you know right now the markets are up the the amount of money that's been devoted to different investment vehicles whether it's private equity venture capital or other sorts of uh, vehicles that want to invest in anything that will put a return on that. And healthcare is always a perennial sort of, there's a lot of problems to solve. And typically, if you have a solution, a new medicine, it's rewarded well in the marketplace. So there's, uh, you know, uh, it's not hard to find money. And now, if we, now. <laughs> have, if we have a big recession, if the markets retreat, if some other social media thing competes with investing, you know, if the blockchain takes off and goes in some new direction and fintech just overshadows all the returns for, for biotech, well, then the money will start to chase that. But there's enough of it out there that even with all these other diverse investments, there's you know, very willing and substantial amounts of money to, to follow some of these neat ideas like mRNA and, and other yeah. things. Yeah, I think the our industry is like probably one of the safest and, and fastest growing, but you bring up a good point. If other industries like fintech, it looks like, um, are could, could possibly compete for some of this VC money, angel investor money. So that's got to factor into it a little bit as well. I think going forward. 
Interesting. Uh, I'm glad to, for everyone that hasn't seen that, you got to go to Zymewire. Uh, just I'll put Scott's LinkedIn profile underneath. So then you can you can just connect with him and he'll send you that one. Or you can just watch our last video. The link is on the bottom. Uh, it's a must watch. I've only seen half of it. The first episode half was amazing. 500. <laughs> the episode 500, guys, you got to go listen. So what as we wrap up, I guess, let's give I want to focus on two more things before we wrap up. So uh, the people that want to work in the industry or maybe the people that already work in the industry, but want to elevate their career to the next level, because look, all this money's coming in. Some people feel like, well, it's time for me to push my comfort zone and level up, maybe go to like senior CRA, even if that means I have to go to another company. So once you start talking about those kind of things, you're talking about biz dev, but biz dev for yourself, right? Yeah. So what, what advice do you have for those people? Let's say, because there's two groups here. There's the people who already work in the industry that just want to level up, and there's the people trying to get in. So let's go with the ones trying to level up. I think it's a little easier. You know, we, we just came off that topic of investing, and we talked about investing in these these new medical therapies, but your career is something that you can invest in also. And that's where you put the time and possibly financial resources into leveling up, just like you said, resources like the ones you offer or other certifications and trainings, uh, whether it's in the therapeutic area that you're focused in, the skill sets and roles that you want to aspire to, um, or learning new skills like selling and, and those types of things we're in a, in a very connected online world where you can touch and access talent that can teach you new skills. And, you know, you look at the evolution of a career and it starts out, you know, early with the skills that you choose to acquire or not to acquire, you know, you, you're presented with op opportunities and it's those skills that you do. Then there's career decisions. Do you go this way into sales mm -hmm. or this way into clinical and you make, career decisions. And then the, the next level after that is who do you associate with? Whose networks are you in? Or do you have mentors? Are you mentoring based on the experience that you have and, and bringing up those behind you? And all of that starts to snowball into opportunities finding you. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, the, the, if, if you're in that skill building stage, you're lucky that unlike myself that grew up when the cassette tape was probably the most innovative thing that you could, yeah. you could do for supplemental education. Uh, now there's so many things like your academies and, and other training programs and identifying and, and networking with mentors and providing value to them so that they could provide value back and then doing the same uh, for, for those coming up behind you. But uh, you know, those, you know, the skills, the decisions and the networking and mentoring will, uh, will be those, those stair steps to, uh, to, to bring opportunities to you so that you get to, you get to choose. Yeah, you bring up a good point. It's not just the job title. It's sometimes the type of company that you move to could be completely different. So a lot of people are at CROs and they say, well, I can go, like we talked in the last interview, episode 500 about the long tail and how there's so many biotechs emerging and how you can go from just a cog in the wheel at a CRO, at a big CRO to like the head of, of, of monitoring, maybe if, if yeah. your skill set and experience is, is uh, adequate for what they're looking for, uh, because they've got to source these people from somewhere. It might as well be you That's or right. 
you can go to like a vendor like a service solutions provider, which some people may say is a little bit of a riskier move, but I would argue back that there was a study done pre-COVID um, and I think by 2025, and this was pre-COVID, this probably accelerated. You guys may know the data better. By 2025, 65% of all revenue in clinical research are gonna go to vendors like solutions providers, not sites, I'm not seeing that, I'm seeing that same trend, yeah. So then it's not risky to go from CRO to a vendor, maybe. Maybe that's a good move to do. Was it one of the CROs? I think it was Worldwide Clinical Trials. They posted on LinkedIn. We have 238 openings. Really? <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I think it was Peter Benton, and uh, it, was a, it was a huge number in the 200s of job openings. So they wow. are, are, are winning business and growing, and I'm sure their peers are, are the same. You know, I, I don't know of a, of a single service provider that, uh, that doesn't have, you know, job openings on there. As I look across the sort of ZymeWire community, mm -hmm. they're all hiring. And then so ZymeWire, what attracted you to ZymeWire? You know, I had been just like yourself. You said you've been using them, what, since 2016 or something like, or longer maybe, yeah. Like, yeah, like 15, I think, yeah. Yeah, so me too. And uh, once I discovered, you know, that they could streamline all of those sales signals that I was looking for. My team started using it. And then during the pandemic, I you know, randomly online bumped into Pete and we started talking. And I, I was thinking like, how great would it be instead of selling a solution to Pfizer and Novartis and the long tail, how great would it be to work with hundreds of sales teams that do that and just you know, help them have what they need to, uh, to, to you know, meet and beat the numbers that are given to them by their sales leadership. And it's just fun to wake up uh, every day and, and help <laughs> multiple sales teams try to reach their goals and to learn about their businesses and their challenges and the opportunities. It, just like, you know, we did in the we webinar, we were, that, that was informed by thousands of conversations with BD people in this space. Yeah, yeah, people need to get familiar with your guys's company. Definitely that last webinar is a must watch the data. I don't, I think people underestimate the data, the value of data that, that is going to uh, be available in the next decade. Uh, I think we discussed last time, you know, there's nothing that I think Pete said it, there's nothing, all information is basically public. There's no such thing as secrets anymore in this space and sites, and even individuals, the more data you can have on yourself, on your capabilities, the more value you're going to provide to whomever's looking to hire you. Yeah, I mean, business data and, and those types of things, right? I, I, I agree with what you said with Pete. You guys that interface with that trusted relationship with the patient, the more consented data that you guys can, uh, can capture, the more value you're going to bring to yourselves and to the industry. And, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, emerging models where you can have long-term, you know, consented relationships for gathering patient data, whether it's through smart devices or other things. But that's a frontier where you guys are the only ones that can set that up at the site level with your trusted relationship with the patient. But the business data, yeah, you have to, to use, you know, the, the sort of best thinking around machine learning and whatnot to tackle it all because it's all over the web and you got to you know discern that that signal from the noise but uh it's doable and uh yeah it's it's uh you know to pete's point it's not a secret it's just a process yeah there's no such thing anymore scott ballinger 
I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for your time. I mean, we're definitely going to have to do a part three. And I got to interview Pete again because we're way overdue for an interview. Um, how he's founded Zymeware or co-founded Zymeware. Uh, right. Is he, he's the co-founder, right? He's the co-founder. He and Ryan uh, founded it uh, 10 years ago. Yeah. Wow, okay. Ryan, I've never met Ryan. He's behind Ryan's the, the IT guy. They don't let him out much. <laughs> <laughs> he he no built wonder. all that stuff I was just talking about. Wow. Yeah. It's impressive. What it just talking behind, behind the off air about what Zymar is up to. And it just shows me the importance of data and how much of this stuff that you can collect. This is going to be super important in the next decade. And this is how you're going to be able to take advantage of all these opportunities out there. So connect with Scott, everybody. His LinkedIn profile will be underneath the video or in the show notes. Scott, is there anything else you would like to tell Guru Nation? Uh, just thank you, Dan, for everything you do for uh, the profession. You are out there hustling every single day. So we appreciate it. Have to, have to. It's the closest thing to cloning myself that I can achieve. So uh, it's my version of automation. There we go. Thank you, Scott. And thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. And we'll catch you all later. Bye-bye.